Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're newer to our church, my name is Dave, and uh, it's my joy, my privilege to be one of the pastors here. And this morning, I want to preach from John chapter 11. I think for many people, this is an important passage of scripture for them. It's a passage in which Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I would argue those may be the most important words ever spoken on our planet in all the time that people have walked the earth. Those words may be the most important that were ever spoken here. I don't know if you've ever lost someone. I'm sure everyone in this room has lost someone that they care about. And if that's ever been your experience or if maybe on the other side of it, You've been weighed down like I was in my 20s. I remember in my early 20s, I went through this weird period where I was so weighed down by this idea that I'm going to die. Death is real, like, and it's so final. You don't all just live forever. One of these days, it's the end, and then we'll all see what's on the other side. And I remember as a young man being so weighed down by that idea, it would some nights just keep me awake like, Every second matters because tick, tick, I'm just taking another step towards the end. And if, you, if you've ever had to deal with the reality, the, the seeming finality of death, of dying, then you know that there's something deep within us that finds death simply unacceptable. Like, I'm offended by it. I hate it. I hate this idea That for all its brokenness, life is beautiful and it has to end. That all of this has to finish and then it's no more. And the thing is, life feels so short and death feels so final. And if you've ever felt that, then you know something deep within us cries out, yearns, hopes that really, truly... Jesus' words are true. That death is not the end of anyone's story if they are in Christ. That there really is a life after this one. I need to know that. And the truth is, when that truth finally sank into my heart, it broke me out of that funk I was in in my 20s. It was a weird period, and it was as if suddenly... I was not afraid of dying anymore. That's something because since then I've done a lot of things that have tempted fate. I have looked really stupid or reckless, but I don't recommend going that way. But I really do think that the only way we can keep trudging through life sane and alert without death as a specter just crushing us is to know truly that there is life after this one. This passage records the raising from death of Jesus' good friend, a man named Lazarus. 
And the way I want to approach the message this morning is instead of three structured points, I want to just walk through this passage. There are 44 verses. I'm not going to touch every single one. We, we have to do skipping stones today. And uh, I'm going to hit the ESPN highlight reel of this story and try to point out to you some things you can't afford to miss in this beautiful story. I'm going to start at the beginning with verses 1 to 3 and listen to what it says. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. You recall that I preached about that story on Recommitment Sunday, the last Sunday of last year. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, if you've been reading, paying attention to the unfolding story in the Gospel of John, shortly after the last message where Jesus heals that man who had been born blind, he restores his sight. You remember that? Jesus begins to challenge and teach the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and he begins to make some really bold claims. Claims that I think if anyone made it today would get them in trouble as well. He says, I and the Father are one. I am the Son of God. You've got to understand the Jews considered God so transcendent, so holy, they wouldn't even write his name on paper. They would just put consonants. They wouldn't even put vowels so you couldn't pronounce the name because we were so unworthy and he was so holy, we're not even worthy to say his name. And I see people today, they miss the bus and they shout, Jesus Christ! And something in me just shouts like that's not right. They considered God so holy, they couldn't even speak his name. And here's this man from a backwater town saying, I am the son of God. I am the long-awaited one. So they picked up stones to kill him. They really meant to murder him because it was such an offense, what he was saying about himself. And he and his disciples got out of Dodge. And so they were out maybe about two, three days' journey away from Jerusalem when word comes through some messengers. And all they say is the one you love is sick. you got to pay attention. That's remarkable. He's not even named because Jesus would know because this friend was so dear to him. That's all that would need to be said. He would recognize the messenger as a household servant of a family he deeply cared about. And he receives word through this messenger that his good friend, his dear, dear friend Lazarus, is sick. We're not talking about he has the sniffles, he's got bad hay fever. He's sick. Like You don't send word unless the sickness is likely so serious it could lead to death. And so here is Mary and Martha's brother, whom we met several weeks ago. And he's laying dying when a messenger alerts Jesus. Now, John, in his account of this whole episode, goes out of his way to say, to establish with no room for doubt, Jesus loved this family a lot. They weren't just people he knew. 
Now, we all like a lot of people, and we really like a lot of people, but there's some people that, beyond the general love we have for all mankind, we cherish them deep in our hearts. Every thought of them makes us smile. Our hearts quicken as we think about spending time together with them. I hope we all have someone like that. I don't take it for granted anymore, because if you read the statistics on loneliness, at least a quarter of Americans say there's not one person in this world whom they feel that way about. That's, that's tragic to me. But most of us will have someone that we can say, man, we don't even name names. You know, I love you. There's no doubt between us where we stand with one another. We can survive anything that happens between us because somewhere back in time, we established once and for all who we're going to be to each other, and we have paid a high cost to be that to one another. And so this is not just a friend. He's a friend. This is what's so remarkable to me about Jesus. He's got such an important mission and he's got so little time to do it. If he were an ISTJ in the Myers-Briggs, he would not find any point to building friendship like this in the midst of such hectic pace, right? I mean... I think about people who are very mission-driven, and I, maybe I got that wrong. I don't know if it's ISTJ, EST, but the people who are all about the point. They watch a movie, and as soon as they know how it's going to end, they're like, oh, I don't need to finish this. Or in the middle of a conversation, they go, so why did you want to meet? What's the point? And I think if you're wired that way where you get really impatient with the journey, and you're just like, can we get there already or just stop? Building friendships of this depth in such a short time doesn't make a lot of sense. But Jesus does it. He goes deep with people. So deep that everyone around goes, we know who he's talking about. It's Lazarus. Everyone knows Jesus and Lazarus. And for John to write this, because he referred to himself throughout this gospel, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. And yet he knows that Jesus loves Lazarus so much, he's like, and I'll concede grudgingly, he also loves other people too. But he doesn't just love this family in a cosmic sense, but in an intimate way. And now he's sick. So you've established a picture here, right? Your good friend is sick. You just received news. You're in the middle of ministry. What do you do? What would you do if you got news like that? Your roommate from college, your childhood best friend, your cousin, your sister, your parents are sick. What do you do? I know what I do. I drop everything, I clear my calendar, I get on a plane, I'm there bedside before you could even say the end of your message. I'm there. Look what Jesus does. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus, again, John is emphasizing now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. I don't know if you got a call from your brother or sister saying, hey, uh, mom and dad are not doing well or... You know, you don't go, all right, um, I've got some really important, 
I got to detail my car, and uh, so, you know what, I'll be there in a couple days. You don't do that, do you? Not if you love someone. This reaction of Jesus is so peculiar that it's needed explanation for thousands of years. People read this, and they're deeply offended by the reaction Jesus has to the news that his good friend is dying, especially because he's already established that he's really good at healing. That sickness doesn't linger around him. He just walks past people. They touch his clothing and they're healed. So if you hear news like that and you are the son of God, healer par excellence, you're supposed to go. There's a moral obligation on you to go. And Mary and Martha both remind him of it. What the heck, Jesus? Where were you? If you had come just a little bit sooner, our brother wouldn't have to die. Why'd you take so long? We sent the messenger like four days ago. What gives? Many have seen in Jesus' response a kind of coldness or numbness, or even worse, a cold kind of manipulation or a mercenary spirit where he's using a personal tragedy to teach an object lesson. And that's not okay, is it? If that's what Jesus is doing, that is not okay. I don't think it's okay for me as a preacher to hear someone confide in me a deep story of pain that's still fresh. And they go, you know what? Uh, Can I use that in next Sunday's sermon to make a point? Um, No, because I'm not an illustration. I'm not a living flannelgram. I'm a person. This is my story. Please don't use me as a teaching tool. I'm a person. and My heart is breaking. So what are we supposed to understand in this weird reaction that Jesus has? Do you feel the tension of it? Why does he go, he loved this family, so he decided to stick around. And really what it's saying, and John is unwilling to say it so baldly, but he's saying he's making sure that Lazarus dies. He's guaranteeing that Lazarus is dead, and not just dead, but that he will have been dead for some time before he shows up on the scene. See, I think Mary and Martha and all the mourners there with them knew that they needed a friend, and Jesus understood that. But I believe that what he really saw in them was not that they just needed a friend to hold their hand in their grief. That's what Jewish people do. They sit shiva. After someone dies, you just sit with them. You don't say anything. You don't counsel. You don't try to lift their spirits. You just sit in the ashes of that sadness together with them. There's something beautiful about that. But he said, that is not what you need is companionship for the heaviness of death that is so final. He understood that what they needed was hope that death doesn't ever have to be the end of anybody's story. It's why he'd come. They didn't just need a friend. What they needed more was a savior. Do you understand that sometimes we sell Jesus so short. We say, be my friend, be my friend. Come take care of me. Keep me company saying, I could do that. But what you really need from me is not my friendship, but my salvation. You don't need someone just to hold your hand. You need someone to make a difference forever in your life. It says that he intended to receive glory 
from what he was about to do. And for that glory to come, Lazarus needed to be dead. This is not vanity. It's not Jesus saying, watch what I could do. He's understanding that for them to see him as a savior, they needed to see this next thing happen. See, Jesus had already demonstrated that he was a man of extraordinary power. He had demonstrated his power in a number of ways. When he taught, people marveled because he didn't teach like their teachers. He taught like he actually meant what he was saying. Not that he was clever and constructing arguments, but he talked as if what he was saying was absolutely true. The word of God himself. And they remarked, what power is this? He teaches with such wisdom and authority. He demonstrated his power in the bold claims that he dared to make about himself. In the fierce, courageous way that he stood up to the most powerful leaders in his day. And he said to them, I know you could have me in prison. I know you could put me to death. I know already you're plotting to kill me, but I'm not backing down. You need to know who I am. And it's offensive. Jesus is constantly thinking, it's offensive that you are Israel's leaders and I am here among you and you, least of all people, recognize who I am. What a tragedy for the people of God that their leaders don't know God when they see him. He had demonstrated his power by casting out demons. That's not a small thing. If I brought to you somebody frothing at the mouth with superhuman strength and I said, hey, you're a Christian with the authority of God, could you do something? How many of you are like, yeah, just leave me in a room alone with that demon-possessed person. Bring it on. Most of us would be like, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? He had cast out demons. Every time I'm invited to pray for a sick person in a hospital, there's this tension like, are you saying you want me to pray and you're waiting for this person to get out of the bed? Like, I, I don't know. That's a lot of pressure. Jesus healed people of real serious diseases. A man who spent his whole life blind suddenly sees. A person who hadn't walked ever suddenly jumps up, picks up his mat, and skips home. In all these things, as a teacher, as a leader, as an instigator of revolution, as a casting out of demons, an exorcist, as a healer, He had demonstrated his power, but here's the thing. In all those things, he was not unique. Others had done all of that. There are lots of good teachers in history. There are a lot of brave revolutionaries in history. People have cast out demons who were not God. Healings have taken place. I've been part of supernatural healings. I pray for people and watch serious illness leave their body. I can't explain it. It still gives me the chills when I think about it. And I am not the son of God. I'm one of his kids, but I'm not the son, capital S. So I think what Jesus recognizes is there is a group of people now called his disciples who have a faith of a kind. I will call it for our purposes an emerging faith. It's real faith. They see something extraordinary in him, but they haven't yet seen enough to truly understand who he is. We like to make faith about some inherent quality of us. Do you have faith? Let me see. I have this much right now. I have this much faith. As if faith is something we store up like a power in us. Faith is nothing in us. It is a response to someone else. 
You don't look in and go, do I have faith today? Like, do I have money today? Faith is a response to something. It's much like happiness, not joy, but happiness. The emotion of happiness is not like you could go, I'm just going to be happy. That's insanity. (laughs) If you're just happy all the time because you decided to be, that's crazy. But happiness, true happiness, is a reaction to something. Joy is different, but happiness is about that, right? So he understands that his followers have faith, but it's not really ripened yet. They know he's extraordinary. They don't yet really know he's Savior. They've heard him say he's God. Those are easy words to hear to a degree, but do you really believe it? Martha is a great example of someone who has an emerging faith. What I love about Jesus is he's not impatient with people. He'll take what he gets and he woos us. He draws us deeper with what we have already. Because he understands that faith is not a measure of some quality in us. It's the extent to which we have actually seen him. I don't ever want anyone at this church to be mistaken about what faith is. Faith is not like patience or compassion or some other thing which if you develop it, you have it in you. Faith is always and only a proportionate response to the God that we see. If you don't see God, you don't have faith. You may have religion, you may have stubbornness, you may have conviction, but you don't have faith unless you see God. Look at this exchange with Martha. And, of course, Martha, because she's the one who's the doer, she's the first one running up. Here comes Jesus. She's going to be the greeting party. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, it's February 3rd. We sent that messenger out January 27th. What is this? If you had been here, and now this is kind of like a, a one of those weird, um, it's like an accusation and a praise at the same time. <laughs> if you had been here, my brother would for sure be alive because you're such a good healer. If you had been here, he'd still be alive. And it's as if Jesus is saying, I know. And I don't think had I come in time, I could have resisted the urge to deliver him from his sickness. You know, when your children are learning to walk, and that's not everyone's experience yet, but when my kids were learning to walk, it was so frustrating. I'm like, and they're like, oh, I just want to help you. But if you help them, they'll never learn. There are things you can't do for someone. Like you can't, you know, when you get up and you're like, hey, I'm going to the kitchen, can I get you anything? That's kind. It's considerate. You can't say, I'm going to the bathroom, can I do anything for you? Like, <laughs> right? You can't do that, right? You can't pee for someone. They have to do that for themselves. He wouldn't be able to resist the compulsion to heal Lazarus. So he needed to wait. And he also needed to wait long enough that no one could say, well, Lazarus wasn't really dead. It was a resuscitation, not a resurrection. It was just good CPR. No, not after four days, dude. That's a resurrection. It's not a fluke. It's not a good healer. This is God at work. So Martha says, 
I know that even now, listen to this faith. It's easy to say stuff like this, but she's going to come one day to really understand this. Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. I'm not sure why she's saying that. Because later in this passage, it's clear she doesn't really believe that yet. But I think she knows enough to say that's the right thing to say to Jesus. And it feels like it should be true. Jesus says to her, you're right. Your brother's going to rise again. She goes, I know, in the final resurrection, when you come back, he's going to rise. I I know all that. Yes, thank you. And he goes, no, no. I mean, like, he's going to rise today. Now, in Martha's defense, because we're so hard on Martha, I feel like every Christian that ever lived, one of the first things we've got to do when we get to heaven is find Martha and go, listen, sorry. We judge you. We even use your name to, like, talk derogatorily about people. Like, you're such a Martha. (laughs) You know what? Martha's like most of us. Very few of us are really like Mary. 99% of us are like Martha. We just don't like admitting it. And in her defense, she had just lost her brother. I don't know about you, but if I lost my brother, I couldn't preach today. I'd be raw. My grief would be so deep. I love my brother more than just about any human being on this planet. If I lost him, I'd be a wreck. I wouldn't be thinking theologically. I'd just be saying nonsense. So in Martha's defense, she had just lost her brother. And in all her life's experience, death was not a reversible condition. Dead people stayed dead all her life. So you can forgive her for thinking he surely means in the final resurrection. He's trying to comfort me. He's being kind to me. Who would first go to that place of, oh, you mean he's gonna, you're just going to make him come out of the grave four days later? Who would go to that place first? Would any of us? If I came to a funeral where you're grieving, I said, don't, don't be so sad. She's going to get up. Oh, I know. Some, no, I mean like right now. Is that the first thought you'd have? Of course not. Don't be silly. None of us would have thought that. But Jesus sees that there's a faith of a kind in Martha. And he's saying, Martha, you're going to see something today. And those words you've just spoken, soon, very soon, you will understand how true they are. You're saying right things, but you haven't seen enough of me yet to have faith like that. But you will. I'm going to make sure of it. See, death is the ultimate reminder of our human frailty and our limitations. You can do a lot of things. I love those YouTube videos. People are awesome, you know. If you watch them, like, hey, I couldn't do any of that in a thousand lifetimes. We're pretty awesome. But no one ever has cheated death, just beaten it completely, except Jesus. Death is that great chasm that only God is able to cross. So, so far they'd seen an extraordinary man. Today, they were going to see a man who was God, and he would be established clearly as such because he would do something that none of us ever could do and no one ever again would do. Jesus says to Martha, what would you have said to Martha? Martha, not the final resurrection. I'm talking about today. Why are you so dense? 
Didn't the whole dinner party thing, the watching your sister marry poor perfume, didn't that teach you anything, Martha? Why are you so stubborn? I might have chided her. I might have rebuked her. I might have scolded her. Jesus just goes, oh, Martha, you're almost there. Keep coming. You're almost there. You know who I am, Martha? I'm not just the man who's been kind to you because you've suffered loss. I have beaten death, and I will beat it again today. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Not just figuratively. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I love this unfolding, slowly unfolding faith in Martha. I almost think if I could hear her say, she'd be like, Yes, half question, half statement. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying two very important, different things, related but different. When he says, I am the resurrection, what he's saying is death affects everyone. It crushes us, and we're left feeling so powerless in the face of death. But because of me, death is not the end of the story. It doesn't have to be. It will be for some, but it doesn't have to be for you. Now, we've heard that probably for many of us growing up in church. We've probably heard that all our lives until it's kind of old, almost stale. Eh, There's hope of life after death. Do you realize how profoundly important it is that Jesus said that to us? I I can tell you right now, I would not be able to concentrate on living if the idea of death continued to hang over me like it did in the 20s. It was robbing me of joy. It was creating stress of a, of a magnitude you couldn't understand. It was just like, I, we're all dying. I, I've shared with people the reason that I have insomnia is because my dumb roommate in college bought a clock from Walmart, a cheapo. Tick, 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 tick. And every tick, I was like, I'm walking to death. Every second, I can't even pause it. I can't time out. Every second that stupid clock ticks, I'm dying. And it stressed me out like, There's so little time, and there's so much I want to see, so much I want to do. This world, with all its mess, is still beautiful to me. I want to watch my kids grow up. I want to love my wife till we're old and gray and tired of living. I want to see what technology is like in 20 years. I want to go to the moon and spend the night looking down at earth. And There's so many things. Life is a gift. And I was so aware that it's a gift that is borrowed for so short a time, and then it's snuffed out. If I did not know that because of Jesus, there is the resurrection, the life to come, I don't know that I could actually live this life with any kind of real peace. Every day of my life would feel like the last 15 minutes of a two-hour game card at GameWorks. Swipe. I don't like this game. Swipe. Panic. It's like the last hour of cramming when you're not ready for a test. Just this feeling like it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, and you don't get to control when it arrives. 
How do you feel anything resembling peace when death hangs over you and there's no hope? And that's the way so many people live. I think that explains why so many people need to dial it up to 11 and just turn up the music and not think. Replace hope with distraction because the reality of death is so heavy. And Jesus says in the face of that, if you believe in me, there is an eternity to come. So calm down. Look at my face. One day, one hour after another, live because you will never die. Those words saved me. They can save you. He also says, I'm not just the resurrection, which is like someday. You could say you believe it and stop thinking about it for like 80 years. But he says, I'm not just the resurrection. I am the life right now. You don't have to just trust me that when you stop breathing, you will still be alive. You can trust me that right now, in a world filled with a thousand different kinds of dying, before you die, you will die many times in this world. I'm not talking about physiological death. I'm talking about everything in this world seems to die. Everything. Relationships die. Businesses die. Body parts die. Innocence dies. Hopes and dreams die. This is a world marked by death. So many things die down here. Before you breathe your last, you will die a hundred deaths. That's not a feel-good sermon of the year, right? Don't, don't send this link to a friend who's depressed. But that's the honest truth of it, isn't it? And you can't accept the good news as good if you don't stare the bad news right in its face. Things die here. And what he's saying is, if you can trust me for life after the big death, you can trust me for life in the face of the little deaths. None of these little deaths are easy. They crush us. You cannot be involved in the death of a marriage, the death of a friendship, the death of a business, a career, an ambition, a hope, a plan. You cannot be involved in any of these lesser deaths. And walk away unaffected. You can't. They will mess you up. Take something from you. But if Jesus were not in the picture, you would have to scramble back up the hill on your own power. And you would still live under the shadow of that death all your days. But what he says is, if you can trust me for the resurrection, you can trust me that I can make you come alive now, even when everything around you is dying. It's so important. It doesn't say that he's going to restore the things that are dying around us. He never makes that promise. He sometimes does, but he doesn't always. What he always promises is, I will restore the things that are dying in you. And that's the death that we really want to be delivered from. I was supposed to be a genetic engineer. 
Before that, I was supposed to be a doctor. I am neither of those things, and those things in that season of my life meant everything to me. My email address after college was MD or bust. And everyone would ask me, what's MD or bust? I'm like, it's your ignorance, that's what that is, right? But I thought for sure my destiny was to be a doctor like my dad. Anyone who's a doctor knows it's not just a job, it is in your blood, it is what you see yourself as. You even address yourself in the morning as looking good, Dr. Lee. You're not even just a guy anymore, you're a doctor. And that's what I thought I was going to be. Those things die and they affect you. But you can survive those deaths. He, he didn't restore it. I'm not an MD today. If I try to give you medical advice, plug your ears. If I give you spiritual advice, open them back. But, you know, you know the truth is, he doesn't always restore what's dying around us. But what he says is he will always restore what is dying in us. And that's the part we need most. I had to look in the mirror and say, I knew who I, I was and how I felt about myself when I thought I'm going to be a doctor someday. Not just a doctor, a surgeon. I mean, after all, right? <laughs> in my mind, thinking, my dad's a surgeon. That's the only kind of real doctor is a surgeon. Now what I look when I stare in the mirror, what do I see? A civilian, a non-doctor, just a guy. It's hard for me to walk in the hospitals because I always said I'd be the guy in the white lab coat. Everyone's like, doctor, doctor. I'm just pastor there for visitation, and I'm restricted to hours. You know, it's just... But you know what? Something in me came to life even after that thing which meant so much died. What about you? Do you experience God this way? That even while everything is dying, you are coming to life. In fact, I would say that's one of the most reliable signs of the new life. It's not that you like God, but that you are alive in him, even when, especially when, before this, you will be dying inside, strangely, out of the ashes of everything falling apart, you are coming alive. Hope is rising. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He wrote beautifully in 2 Corinthians. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Are you hearing his heart? This is what it means to know Jesus, who is not just the resurrection, but he is the life even now. Later in that chapter, he says, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. 
rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. This is the linkage between the resurrection and the life. The same God who says to you, I will raise you even after you die, says to you, there's no death down here out of which I cannot raise you to life. What's dying for you? If you've never trusted Jesus for the resurrection, that's priority one. Look for him. Ask him to show himself to you. You need to see in him the resurrection that gives hope in the face of impending death, the finality, the shortness of this life. But if you've trusted him for that, trust him for the other deaths you are dying all the time. Jesus connects with Mary. He walks to the grave and he stands outside and says, roll away that stone. My friend is not going to stay dead. He gives a prayer and in the prayer it's clear that he's already prayed for this. And he says out loud, thank you God for hearing me. See, he prayed privately before he ministered publicly. The hard business was already done. And then He stands in front of a grave and like a lunatic, he says to a dead man, Lazarus, buddy, cut it out, come out. Shake off death and just come out. And everyone there was like, what is wrong with this man? Not only is that impossible, it's so insensitive to do to his sisters. Why would you do that? But without skipping a beat, Look at what it says. It says, in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Don't you love the Bible? One sentence is insanity. It's absurdity. The next sentence is a miracle. The dead man. You should not read that and just be like, oh yeah, this is the Bible. Think about that sentence. The dead man came out. He's been dead for four days. His sister Martha typically is worrying. He's going to smell terrible. God, Jesus, we can't roll the stone away. And he comes out. There are things that you think are just dead beyond revival. And maybe that thing is dead, but maybe you died with it. And maybe you've trusted Jesus for the final resurrection, but you are wrapped in your grave clothes right now. There's no peace, no hope. Something profound in you died when that thing died. And Jesus says to you this morning, I am not just the resurrection. I am the life. Stop looking for someone to blame. Stop protecting yourself. Trust me. I may not restore this thing you lost, but I'm going to restore you. And I believe Jesus, for some of us this morning, is looking right at your heart and he's shouting in a loud voice the same thing he said to Lazarus. Come out. Come out. You have been dead inside long enough. You have grieved long enough. You have been without hope long enough. That is not what he plans for you. 
He is the resurrection and he is the life. Amen? You can live again. I know it doesn't seem that way. But that's his promise for you. And here's the beauty. He didn't shout the command and Lazarus roused himself like my children getting up for school in the morning. I know, I know. The command itself carried the power to do what Jesus said. Lazarus didn't obey Jesus. Lazarus was given life by the command itself. That's what he's saying to you. When you hear his voice say to you, come out. He's not saying try if you can. He's saying, I am telling you, you are alive in there. You don't have to stay dead. Come out. Come out today, right now. And if you hear his voice, you don't have to die with the things that are dying around you. You can come to life even now. I found that I can't stir up that life myself. Can you? But he can. And I think he wants to. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.